All right, Mosaic, I, I, uh, today I want us to get back to the basics, the basics of the gospel, who, who is God and what does he require of us? I think that sometimes we, we like to overcomplicate our faith and it keeps us from actually living it out. And so it's my hope that today's sermon is extremely clear. So buckle up, we got a lot to do in the next 25 minutes. Because it's clear, it might also be controversial. It's just how this happens. And so to get a taste of it, I wanna ask the congregation an impossible question. So already you know it's an impossible question, so don't get mad at me. When you think about the Christian faith, yours and that of the people around you, which is most fundamental, belief or action? Choose, choose one. No cop-outs like they're, they're inextricable or one leads to the other. We all know it's nuanced, but I want you to pick one. I'm gonna give you seven seconds to think, and then you're gonna raise your hand for one or the other. Pick one. Seven seconds. Okay, everybody who, your first impulse is belief, raise your hand. Great. For, everyone who says, for, 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 for anyone who says action, raise your hand. Good, we got a, we got a pretty even split. So I, asked, so I asked Twitter, I asked Twitter this too, um, and it's Twitter. I don't care what billionaires call it, it's, it's Twitter. Um, and, and it was, you may, you may not be able to see it, but it was 56% belief, 44% action. Now, I like, to, I like to ask these kinds of questions, these kinds of impossible votes, because uh, not only does it make people uncomfortable, but it reveals to us our theological instincts. And so I want you to think about what you said, also what you saw in your brothers and sisters. Because chances are, uh, I think the first half of this sermon is probably going to stress some of you out. And I just, I, 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 I just want to name that, encourage you to bear with me through it. The comfort is coming. My joke with, my joke with Slim is that uh, with, our, with our preaching styles, uh, it's like I'm the, I'm the bomb and he's the, and he's the balm. So I'm, I'm going to try to do both of those things. I'm going to try to blow some stuff up, but also put some pieces back together. So we're, we're, going to, we're going to be all right. So let's talk about Isaiah 50 and why I asked that question. In the book of Isaiah, the first half, chapters 1 to 39, are addressed to the people of God under Assyrian rule and before the most traumatic event of their lives, the Babylonian exile. And so when the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians, they, they take the people of Israel away from their land, they destroy their temple, and they remove their king. In other words, in the eyes of the people, they're completely destroyed. The Babylonians take everything that they hold dear. And in chapters 40 to 66, it's, it's God reminding the people, no one can destroy them because he is their God. And as long as he's on their side, they can never ultimately be defeated. But the question still lingered for a lot of the people. Why is this happening to us? This seems really extreme. And they would also ask God, well, what did we do to deserve your forsaking us? Are you not powerful enough to defeat the Babylonians? And as the, as the meme goes, God took that personally. Verses 1 to 3 are that, are that response. When God says in verse 1, where is, the, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? The, these are rhetorical questions. God didn't divorce his people. God didn't randomly sell them off. The second part of this verse is, because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. What the Lord is telling his people is, look, I didn't do this to you, you did this to you. 
by your disobedience. Now, this is a very important particular historical point. The people of God go into exile because of their idolatry and because of their oppression of the poor. Two very significant pieces of disobedience. Not for believing the wrong things in terms of just kind of intellectual assent, but for acting unjustly. And this is not saying that everything that you undergo is a result of your sin. That would be ridiculous. Sometimes people do evil things regardless of how faithful you are. But sometimes you and I find ourselves in suffering because it's our fault. There's a comedian who had this joke about, uh, about folks who use the phrase, the devil is busy. And so, uh, so he calls his friend, goes straight to voicemail, uh, and then... And so then when he sees his friend, his friend is like, oh, you know, the devil's busy. And, and, and he responds, no, 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 the devil's not busy. Like, you just didn't pay your phone bill. Like, that's a you. That's a you issue. Sometimes, some of us are in situations because we didn't pay our phone bills. So then, but, 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 as, a, but, as, a, but as another point, when we, when, we, when we think about situations where our suffering is our own fault, I think one of the other things is that as we seek to love our brothers and sisters and neighbors, we will find people in situations that are in those situations because of their own deeds. Sometimes that's the case. And we often use that as an excuse to not come alongside them. And yet God has called us to be a people of mercy. Just as we were in our own muck and mire when the Lord reached out to us, so also are we called to be a people of mercy. Side point. So, 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 when, so, 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 so as a response to Israel's unfaithfulness, the rest of this chapter gives an account of a character who's going to show up throughout this section of Isaiah. And this character is called the servant of the Lord. And sometimes it's the people, sometimes it's the Messiah. But the primary thrust of these servant songs is this is the kind of person that God has created us to be. And so what do we learn from this passage? I want to grab a few, a few pieces of this, of this reading. First, verses 4 to 6. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. I want to skip down to verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from, from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. And last, verse 4. Listen to me, my people. Hear me my nation. Instruction will go out from me. Literally, Torah will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My, my righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. What is it that separates the people of God from the nations? The people of God are to be the people that does what the Lord says. And why do they do it? Because he's Lord. I want to go back to, back to chapter 50, that, that name for the Lord, the sovereign, the sovereign Lord. What is that? It's the, it's the divine name plus the word Adonai. So it would be spoken, for those who wouldn't pronounce the divine name, it would be spoken as Adonai, Adonai. Lord, Lord. 
Why? Because, it's, because it emphasizes that our God has revealed himself not just as the one who's created us, but as one who we need to obey. But, as our Savior says in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Adonai, Adonai, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are terrifying verses. And they take us back to our pole. What is really fundamental to our faith, that we believe rightly about God or that we do what he says? Impossible question, unfair question. Really, what's fundamental is that we do what he says because we rightly believe who he is. But one of the things that you notice when you look through the scriptures is that something that seems seems to get pressed over and over and over again is that God is insistent that we actually do what he tells us to do. Even those verses that we think are about intellectual assent are also about action. I think about Romans 10, verses 9 to 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The heart is not just about feelings. It's the seat of your being, and it's the root of your action. If something is in your heart, then that's what compels you to do what it is that you do. And also, when you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, when you say that, you're engaging in a politically subversive act because you're saying that in a world with a lot of different lords. And when you believe that God raised him from the dead, what you're affirming is that everything that this Jesus said was true, that God stamped his stamp of approval on this Jesus by the resurrection, that he, was, that he was vindicated, that when you say that God raised him from the dead, what you're saying is everything that this guy said is true. In other words, the person who says that Jesus is Lord and who believes that God raised him from the dead is a person who does what this Jesus says. So we, we as, a, as a room, half and half on the belief action side. And I think, I think when, when, when we think of those impulses, both of them can mess us up in some ways. So some of us are used to contexts where orthodoxy is everything. Some of us are used to contexts where if you get a detail about the Trinity wrong, you're shunworthy. If you take too many exceptions to the Westminster Confession, you're out. You're probably not even a Christian. And the heresy hunter in me tended to lean this way. It also te- the, te- the heresy hunter in me also tended to think that if you get the theology right, then the, then the deeds will follow. Ah, not, not quite, actually. That's, that, that's actually not even the way that the scriptures frame it. Because, because, because one, two things that, that you'll find in the scriptures are not only explicit commands, but explicit links between particular theological ideas and particular commands. That is, there's not the assumption that if you believe the right thing, that you'll do the right thing. Here's an example. The people of God in Deuteronomy 15 are commanded to practice jubilee. That means that every seven years, they forgive all debts and they set all of the slaves free in their midst. And the effect of that is that it's supposed to build a nation that's free of lifelong economic exploitation. But why? Is it just because exploitation is bad? 
Well, God tells them why. Deuteronomy 15, 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command today. That is, the people of God are to be poverty abolitionists and opponents of continuous exploitation because they know what it's like to be enslaved and because God set them free. That is, they are this way because God freed them in order to free others. You see, the Lord is not just calling us to have the right reasons. He's calling us to do the right thing for the right reasons. Now this, as I mentioned before, has probably stressed some of you out. And, and that's likely because some of you may be in Luther-like situations where you're used to religious contexts that heap burden and burden upon you with the threat of divine judgment if you don't obey. And then when you mess up, because we all mess up, you're discouraged and you think, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't live up to this standard. I can never do enough. And what that leads to is extreme self-scrutiny where you run every thought and deed through the ringer. And when they don't add up, you beat yourself up over it. And so you hear the language of obedience and you freeze up because it's been poisoned in your mind by abusive sources. And I get it, dear brother. I get it, dear sister. And this is why I want to spend the rest of our time talking about not only the content of our obedience, like what do I mean when I say do what the Lord says, but also why we do what the Lord says. This is not an account of obedience that comes first and foremost from the thought, hey, God's big, you're little, don't make him mad, or he'll beat you up. Like that's, that's fear that is terror of punishment. It shows up in the scriptures, yes, but that's not the primary reason that the Lord encourages us to do what he says. Here are the three. I'm going to talk about these three, and then, and then we'll finish with, with what obedience looks like. Obedience is where we find true comfort. Obedience is an act of gratitude. And obedience is an act of revolution. Of course, there was going to be something about revolution, just so, I mean, you, you know. So the first reason that we, that, that we find, we find it in the servant's words in Isaiah 50, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. However obedience is understood, it is the more restful way. Jesus hints at this when he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What the Lord is saying is that, is that, is that, when, you, is that when you believe in Christ, when you, when, you set your life, when you set your life upon the rock, when you recognize that this Son of God lived, died, lived this perfect life, died, was raised, and ascended, when you, when you are united to this Jesus and, we're, and when you're committed to doing what he says, that is the life of rest. Why do I say that? It's because the world is exhausting. The world is exhausting. We especially know that it, 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 we, we, can, we, we can think about hustle culture. We can think about an economy where prices seem to keep going up and wages don't seem to be doing the same. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you can think about being on Instagram and seeing all these parenting things and being like, I'm a terrible parent. There's so much more that I should be doing. You can think about this as a worker where your boss may be constantly on your back. You may think of this as an entrepreneur who's constantly told day by day, every single day is a profit-making day. That is tiring. That is an exhausting way to live. 
Isaiah is talking to a people who are under Babylonian captivity, and the demands of the empire are exhausting. They want all of your resources, all of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure. They want all of it. But the sovereign Lord comes in and tells us, don't worry. They're not in charge. I am. So give me your time and your talent and your treasure, and I will not only comfort and strengthen you, but I will give you more in order to give to others. More on that a little bit later when we talk about the content of obedience. First, obedience comes with comfort. Because instead of consciously and unconsciously obeying the commands of the world, which is constantly telling us what to do, but it's a world that doesn't care about you and just wants to suck as much, of as, as, much as it can out of you, instead, turn toward the God who created you, who loves you, who actually does know what's best for you. But secondly, obedience comes as gratitude. The servant, after describing him or herself as someone who's been instructed and who isn't rebellious, says this in verse 7. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. You see, brothers and sisters, we're to obey the Lord because he has delivered us and because he's promised to deliver us. We obey the Lord because he saw and sees us in our distress and he reaches out to us in his grace and his mercy. We, sinful and imperfect people that we are, have no claim to God's kindness and yet he still gives it to us over and over again. He, he continues to wake us up. He continues to give us breath. He continues to give us sweet moments with our communities, with our families, with our kids. He, he continues to be kind to us and he sends his only son to die and to be raised, to bring us to himself. That is a God worth obeying. That is a God whom you can trust with your life. That is a God worth a life of gratitude. The servant obeys the Lord because he or she knows that God is the one who helps, that God is the one who vindicates, that God is the one who will ultimately make the final verdict on your life, that it's God who's going to utter the final well done over you. Your boss is not going to do that. Your spouse is not going to do that. Your mom and dad are not going to do that. The Lord is going to do that. And so whatever charges you may face from those people, doesn't matter if what is ever before your eyes is the question, am I being obedient to the Lord? But the last thing, that obedience comes from comfort, it flows from gratitude, but it also manifests itself as revolution. Chapter 51, verses 4 to 5, God is talking about a cataclysmic reality. He says this, listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction, Torah, will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. In the immediate ears of the people of God, what they're going to hear is salvation means being saved from Babylon. But as God has said throughout the book of Isaiah, if we zoom out, what God is constantly saying is, I'm the God of the whole world. The issue is that there are powers and principalities that claim power over that world. Powers of greed, of pride, of, 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 of exploitation, of domination that try to claim the lives of our brothers, our sisters, and our neighbors. And to that, God says, instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. How? Through the people of God. 
The most revolutionary thing that you can do is to do what the Lord has commanded us to do. The best way to remind the powers and principalities that they've been defeated, because remember, you're not beating them. Jesus already did that on the cross. No, no, no. It's to do what the Lord has commanded us to do. And what is that? It's not a trick question. Jesus answered it. Two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we find out from John... That, when, that we act out our love for God through our love of our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. So that's the content. That is what Jesus says is the summary of the law. And when you look through the Gospels, I mean, you can, and, you, and you can read them for yourself, but I'll, but I'll give you a few examples of what that looks like. Well, it means that we're to be meek. It means that we're to be merciful, that we're to be pure in heart, that we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we're to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to invite the strangers in, to give clothes to the naked, to look after the sick, to visit the prisoners. All of these are explicit commands of the Lord that, according to him, are the things that his people do. This is not Jesus saying, hey, you know, if you, if, you, if you got some time, sprinkle these things over the course of your life. No, it's Jesus saying, I want you to be known for doing and being these things. And people will know what we love by the way that we spend our time. This is one of the examples. People know what we love by the way we spend our time. So somebody looked at your or my day, what loves would be revealed? Would they find that we love our phones? Would they find that we love our kids? Would they find that we love our spouse? Would they find that we love our TV? Would they find that we love our money? What might it mean to ask the Lord upon waking, Lord, who is it today that you want me to love? And at the end of the day, reflecting, Lord, how did you equip me to love my neighbor today? When Jesus says that this second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is part of a summary of the law, what he means is that every command that he gives can be understood as that command. What do I mean by that? When, when, when Jesus says to avoid all kinds of greed, for example, what he's saying is that greed is at root a failure to love your neighbor. Because whenever a person becomes a thing to be exploited, you're failing to love them. When he tells us that lust and adultery are the same, what he's reminding us is that these are both failures to love our neighbor. When a person becomes an object of lust, we fail to love them. I could go on. But brothers and sisters, what sets the kingdom of God apart from the, king, from the kingdoms of the world is not merely a system of belief, though belief is very, very important. But it's that, a, it's, that, it's that it's a community of people who have been united to the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and, and, and who have been indwelt, don't stop Siri, who, and, and who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God himself, so that they can live lives worthy of and pleasing to the Lord. A people who bear fruit in every good work. A people who grow in the knowledge of God and are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. A people with tremendous endurance and patience because they know that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead has promised to do the same thing for them. This is a people that knows that God does not merely want us to believe the right things about him and convince people of those things, but that this is a people that God has called that, 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 that know that God has called us to a life of joyful obedience and that our witness is not just our rhetoric, but our witness is our lives. So how can that be true? I want to end with this. I want you to consider your time, consider your talent, and consider your treasure. You need time for yourself 
time for your family, all of those things are necessary. How much of your time is for your neighbor? Not incidentally involving your neighbor, but for your neighbor. Even in thinking about your kids, how much of your time is not just with your kids, but for your kids? Think about Jasmine, she wants to play with her little dollhouse and, I'm, and I will play with her, which means I will sit on the couch on my phone while, you, while she plays. That's not me, that's not, that's not time that is for her. That's time, with, that, that's time that's spent with her. What might it mean for you to even think about this time with your spouse or with your friends? How much, how, how, what, what would it look like for you to think of that as time for those people as opposed to just time with them? Love is expressed when that time is devoted to someone else, not, not just incidentally involving them. As an example, this, uh, this coming Saturday, I'm planning to take the family to Shepherd's Heart on Saturday and just sort donations, stock shelves, one way to feed the hungry. And if any of you guys want to join, email me, we'll all go together. But what about your talent? What about the gifts that the Lord has given you? Each of you has been gifted by the Lord in really important ways. How can that be mobilized for the common good? How can that be mobilized for you to serve your brothers and sisters here? You've been given those gifts for a reason. What about your treasure? I know, I know we have some supremely generous people in this congregation, brothers and sisters who are eager to meet one another's needs. And John Chrysostom has this great portion of a sermon where he basically says that the devil delights in making up ways for us to spend our money. And the Lord... When he sees fit to give us extra, he gives us extra so that we can give to the needy. Yes, you need money for food, for education, for clothing, for retirement. All those things are, all those things are needs. I'm not denying, we are not denying one another our needs. What I'm saying is that one of the things that we can do is we can think together creatively about how our treasure can be redistributed to lift up the needy. It's actually the most important thing that we can do with our resources. And so in short, brothers and sisters, by the Spirit, and this is what this is a very, very important, this very important cause, by the Spirit, obey the Lord. It is the path of peace. Why? Not only because of all that the Lord has done for us, and he has done a tremendous amount. He has done great things. Not just because it's going to ultimately end in the just transformation of the world, but because God sent his son and his spirit to empower us to do this very thing. And so when you're tempted to be overwhelmed, don't look at the circumstances. Look at the God who's promised to be with you and to hold up your hands when you're tired. Lean on the people whom God has placed around you and continue to take those baby steps, baby steps of righteousness in faith day after day after day. Let's pray.